Well, I've titled today's sermon, From Time to Eternity, From Time to Eternity. We're in our counterculture sermon series going through the book of 1 Corinthians. Church at Corinth was a mess. Paul is addressing one issue after another. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, he's having to straighten them out regarding spiritual gifts. And when you come to 1 Corinthians 13, often it is read at weddings, some lovey-dovey, love is, and oh, isn't that sweet kind of passage. But if you actually understand it in the context of 1 Corinthians as a whole and 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, it is actually Paul kind of getting in the faces of the Corinthians a little bit, as he does often. Uh, But Paul is addressing an issue in the context of love, saying, look, these spiritual gifts and the things you're bragging about, if you don't operate in the context of love, then all this other stuff you're doing is, is worthless. It's that fool moment. It doesn't matter. And so really, 1 Corinthians 13, rightly understood, is, is actually a very confrontational passage of Scripture. It's not what we typically get it at as these sweet, lovey-dovey, gaze into each other's eyes at the wedding kind of passage. It's Paul confronting the Corinthians about their lack of love. Now, before we continue on with this study of spiritual gifts and how love plays into this, I want to give you a little bit more background. There are three things that we need to differentiate, and and I separated two of them last week, and I want to separate all three this week. There is what is called the gift of the Spirit, number one. If you believe upon Jesus Christ as the Savior that God has provided, and you are saved, you are a child of God, you are forgiven of your sins, you are also given the gift of God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell in you, and you are His forever. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But as we've been looking at, the Holy Spirit, who is the gift of God to you as His child, He gifts you. There are the gifts of the Spirit, and that's what we looked at more last week. Uh, the, The gift of wisdom, or of prophecy, of faith, these different gifts, each believer, each believer As they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit gifts us to then serve God, to render to God the service that He wants. So there's the gift of the Spirit, there are the gifts of the Spirit, and then third, there is the fruit of the Spirit. That's Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit, which is interesting when it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's not that any of these operate individual of one another, they all operate together. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. That's that's the fruit of the Spirit. That is the fruit that the Spirit produces in your day-to-day walk with Christ and your relationships with one another. So three different concepts, but they all three work together. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 13 is he takes one of the fruits of the Spirit and he's pulling it over into this discussion, really more than just one of the fruits of the Spirit, but one primary fruit of the Spirit, love, and he pulls it over into his discussion on the gifts of the spirit all right so either you got that or i've completely confused you in the first couple minutes but either way let's pick up at first corinthians 13 verse 1 though i speak with the tongues of men and angels but have not love i become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal now we know as we read through the psalms that that cymbals 
and, and, and percussion were part of Israelite worship. And so he, he's not saying anything negative about that, but it's this image of as if a, a cymbal came off of that drum set and rolled down here and was just clanging down these steps and we were uh, kind of clenched and, and flinching each time it fell down a step and that noise that is unpleasant. And what Paul is saying is that even if I have the gift to speak with the tongues of men or angels, prophecy or speaking in tongues and, and I'm giving this great speech, which at Corinth, I mean, a lot got done. You, you could move mountains if you're a good orator. You could convince crowds and sway people. I mean, you could get stuff done. So saying if you're a great orator and you have the most excellent speech, you have great skill, great ability in that. But it's done apart from love. Through the Spirit, love. Then I become a, a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It's saying it's not, it's not worthwhile. It's not doing anything. It's, it's not a part of God's work. It's just this noise that causes the people around you to clench up and flinch and go, I, I don't like that. And then look at verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and knowledge. Again, he's going back to chapter 12. He's bringing in some of the spiritual gifts. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but I have not love, I am what? Nothing. Now, he's speaking figuratively here because we understand that we all have value in, in Christ. So he's not saying, man, you're nothing, you're, you're worthless, you're valueless. But this word that we translate here, this Greek word, uthen, that we translate as nothing, when it is used literally, it means zero. So if you were writing something down on an account and somebody had a balanced account, they had paid you what they owed you, and the account balance was zero, you could put uthen in there, zero. Nothing is owed. What's interesting is that Paul is speaking of some pretty great gifts. I mean, the gift of prophecy, understanding mysteries and knowledge. If you think about somebody in that light, functioning in those abilities with that spiritual giftedness, that, that's kind of big time, right? I, I mean, that's a great thing. That's a big thing. I mean, if you were around somebody that was foretelling or foretelling the Word of God and understanding just kind of like that Solomon wisdom, just the wisdom of life and understanding the things of God and how life works. And you're just kind of like, wow, this is, this is really amazing. And maybe you have a faith that's just unshakable. Uh, there is a, a faith that we all have as believers that we're told that if we even have the faith of a mustard seed, uh, it, we can move mountains. But then there is a gifting of faith. And he's saying, look, you have this gifting of faith that just can't be swayed by anything. You have this gift of faith but you're not operating in love it's zero that's a strong statement isn't it i mean if you you're prophesying you're telling forth the word of god and you're understanding the mysteries of god and you have a faith that moves mountain but it's devoid of love it's not operating within love he's saying it doesn't matter all of that other stuff you did it, 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 your account is still zero in other words, what you've done, fool, tonight your life is required of you. It's not mattered. It's not making the jump from time to eternity. Then look at verse 
3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me what? Nothing. One commentator said it this way at the beginning of verse 3 where he says, and though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, he said, you know, how many times do people go to, quote, fundraisers for the poor where they're entertained and give their money to help a cause, but we never actually take the time to learn the name of a poor person. And he's saying, look, I can do all of this in the name of helping other people. Many times we do things that are good, but it's very selfish. It's very driven by what's best for us, what makes us feel good about ourselves. He's saying, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, that's big. All my goods, though I'm, you could say, sacrificially giving to help others. And I give my body to be burned. But have not love, it profits me nothing. Now you can say, Paul, that's a little over the top. I mean, if I die a martyr's death, you're still saying it profits me nothing? It's still Uthan? It's still a zero? Yeah. Unfortunately, we see that in our current world. Jihadists. They believe that if they die a, quote, martyr's death, killing infidels, that everything else is erased. And they go to paradise. So what they will do is before they carry out a suicide bombing, because that bombing, that quote martyr's death is going to give them entrance into paradise, the week before is just filled with all kinds of sin and debauchery because it doesn't matter because they're about to die a martyr's death that will wipe out all the bad. I mean, we see this in our world today. People have bought into that where they even think that this act that they're about to do wipes out all the other but Paul says to the contrary says no even if you were to give yourself to that extent a martyr's death to something you believe in if you were to die for a cause that you were passionate about but you're doing it to perpetuate your own name or your own selfish desires it's not truly born out of love he's saying it profits me nothing these are some strong statements, right? You see how I'm saying it's not quite that lovey-dovey passage that you think of at weddings. It's Paul's getting in their face. And we know from what we've been looking at in Corinthians that there was truly a lack of love in Corinth. They were fighting and squabbling over everything that they could. And in chapter 12, we saw they were doing it over spiritual gifts. And so that brings us to our first point today. Is number one, a life that lacks love lacks everything. Now, that may seem very elementary, but there's a vast gap between knowing something and doing something, you see. And we need that truth deep into the core of who we are as believers in Jesus Christ. A life that lacks love, if, if, if I'm not acting in love in what I am doing, then it's a zero. But even the smallest thing that I do in love, then that counts. Then that counts in God's economy. Growing up in Dallas, I remember there was a time when I was a teenager that our street had a lot of potholes in it. And it was just tore up. And the city contracted a company uh, to reconcrete our whole street. 
So they were doing it in sections, so there'd be a time where your driveway was closed off or you had to go this way or that way down the street, and they did it in sections, and they repaved the whole street. It was an outside company that the city of Dallas contracted to come in and do this job. About a month after they had completed their repairs and left, I remember leaving my parents' house one day and noticing cracks in that brand new street. I was like, "Ah." even as a teenage boy, I was like, that's... That doesn't look promising. Something's wrong here. And those cracks continued to grow and to grow and to grow. And before I knew it, uh, large trucks, like a, maybe even a, a FedEx or a UPS truck that was loaded down, would start chipping up the concrete. And we had a worse state than we had before. So the city of Dallas investigated it. And what they found was that this company that they had brought in had not used the proper amount of rebar, and they had watered down the concrete in an effort to cut cost and pocket that extra revenue. So what happened is we had a street that was far worse of a mess than what we had started with. You see, you can have all the workers out there. You can have all the activity out there that you want. You you can have all the commotion, and it looks like something good is happening. But if you take away those essential ingredients, all you have done is you've been out there making a big mess. And what happens is, and this is where it gets tough, and this is where it was tough for the Corinthians. The world was watching the Corinthian church be real busy about making a mess. About fighting over spiritual gifts and fighting over who they followed and going to court against one another and not going, not, uh, they were exalting people that were in 1 Corinthians 5 and sexual immorality instead of calling sin, sin. And then they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and what the outside world was watching was a church that had a lot of activity, but it was missing love. And Paul is over and over and over again having to correct this issue that at its core, at its core, is a lack of love. And that's why this chapter really to the Corinthians is so important to them. First Corinthians 13, if they could get this rectified, then many of those other issues would work out. And in fact, what Paul does is he introduces this issue in 1 Corinthians 12 about their misbehavior in, in spiritual gifts. But then he takes all of 1 Corinthians 13 to just talk about love and he lays that foundation work of love before then in verse chapter 14 he really addresses the issue. So Paul lays this foundation of love and that's the foundation that we must have. That's the essential ingredient that we must have. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You can't take away that ingredient. Life just doesn't work apart from the love of God. But let's continue on verse 4. And what Paul does is he gives some positive things that that love does, and then he gives some things that love does not do. So there are uh, positive and negatives here to help us frame in what love is. Love suffers long. So he he doesn't give us a direct definition, but he gives us descriptors of what love is. Love suffers long and is kind. Okay, God is kind, right? And God suffers long with us. When you read this 
list of love, it, it really reflects on the very nature of who God is. I remember early in my years of ministry when I was a church planter, uh, my music leader uh, said something to me one time. Our children's director was going through some stuff in their family life, and, and the way I, I can be pretty direct, and they're like, yeah, really, we get it. And I kind of can at times have a prophetic edge that I have learned to tone down over the years. I really have, I promise. And my worship leader came to me and he said, you know, what you said to her was right, but you were so direct about it she didn't hear you. And I, thought, and I learned something from that. I learned that as love is kind, it's not just about what we say, it's about saying it in a way that people can receive it. Unkindness is, I want to just say this to get it off my chest, and I really don't care how it affects you. It's more about me saying it. Kindness is, I love you enough that I not only want to say this, but I want to say it in a way that you can receive it and it can be a benefit to you. And that's how God treats us, right? He suffers long and he's kind towards us. And, and love does not envy, a way that you could translate envy is jealous. Love's not jealous. Love's not going, well, they have that and I don't. Uh, God is a jealous God, the Bible says. Well, how could God be jealous? Years and years ago, I don't know if y'all remember that. That's where Oprah Winfrey was, was all over the news because she said, well, I just don't believe God could be a jealous God. How could I believe of that God of the Bible? Well, it's because you didn't read the Bible. You read one sentence out of it and took it out of context. What it means for God to be jealous for you is that God cares for you more than we can even understand and so in his jealousy for us he's not going to leave us in our sin but his zeal for us is to draw us to himself to discipline us when we need it to love us in a way that brings us to himself which he knows is our best you see God knows it is our best to know him it is in our best interest to walk with him it is good for us to forsake sin and walk in holiness and so God in his jealousy for us will not leave us to sin but he will constantly draw us to himself see these are the characteristics of God in many ways love suffers long and is kind love does not envy love love does not parade itself it is not puffed up those really go together to form an interesting mental image it does not parade itself it's not puffed up it, it's kind of like this image of throwing yourself a parade that you invite everybody to. So love does not go, hey, uh, I'm having a parade Sunday in my honor. I'd love for you to come and watch me. Wait, what? You know, and, and, and as if love not only wants to throw that parade, but love wants to, I'm sorry, not only that self wants to throw that parade, but self wants to be at the front of the parade, the grand marshal of the parade, and every aspect of the parade so that no one is ever distracted by anything else but self. Love, on the contrary, loves to see others exalted. Love sees the best in others and wants to see others at the front of the line. Love wants to see others do well and to be blessed. And then as you continue on verse 5, it does not behave rudely. It's tactful. Love knows the right thing to say at the right time. It does not seek its own. We've been talking about that. And I think that was at the heart of the Corinthians' problem, a self-centeredness, a lack of love. I mean, they were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. That's pretty bad. 
That's pretty bad. They were seeking their own. It is not provoked. It's not provoked. Love is not just walking around waiting to be set off. I, you know, have you ever heard somebody say, or maybe, you know, you've been one of those people. Well, if they say that to me, I'm just going to go off. It's almost like people are just waiting for somebody to do that thing that in their mind gives them an excuse to just go off on somebody. That's not love. <laughs> That's just looking for an excuse to get mad. You know, love's not easily provoked. It, it thinks no evil. Now, love's not gullible, but love's not also just going around trying to find the wrong in every situation. It does not rejoice in iniquity. The Bible says, what are those who call good evil and evil good? You know, we live in a world today that wants to take sin and call it something else. But, but sin still sin, and when there is sin, you can't rejoice in that. It, rejo- it does not rejoice in iniquity. The, was it Planet Fitness has even shown us that this world understands the difference between a no-judgment zone and rules, right? They, they have that ad about no judgment-free zone, no judgment, come work out here, we won't judge you. But they understand that no judgment, it doesn't mean a lack of rules, in fact, there was a guy that got arrested for trying to put that to the test because he went into a no-judgment-free zone without clothes on to make a point and was promptly arrested. And so even they, as just a corporation, a business, expect us to understand, to have enough common sense that judgment-free does not mean no rules. And so many people will say, well, you can't judge me. You can't judge my life not judging your life the word of God judges our sin and the word of God says this is sin this is not walk this way don't walk this way I see no judgment doesn't mean you just throw off the rules because God is still holy and so the love it rejoices in what's true what is good what is right If you continue on verse 7, it bears all things. Look at this repetition of all. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. I think in some ways, it's kind of oversimplistic, but a way that you could summarize verse 7 is that love is optimistic. Love is looking for the best. Not gullible, but looking for the best. It bears all things. In other words, love stays under the load. It doesn't give up or give in when it gets difficult. Love believes all things. Love is hoping for the best in the other. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Love doesn't just give out when it's hard. That brings us to our second point today. Is this. A life of love is lived for the best of others. True love is outwardly focused. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. Love is known by what it does. So what Paul is saying is, hey, Corinthians, if you're really walking in love, then quit fighting over your spiritual gifts and walk in the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, and then you'll really see your spiritual gifts prosper. So if you really want to walk in your giftedness and really want to serve the Lord and see your spiritual gifts flourish, you have to have that fruit of the Spirit operating in your life first. And there's a difference here. I feel like we always have to touch on this in today's world. There's a difference between forgiving and enabling. 
Love does not keep a tally mark of wrongs that you bring out at every argument. That's not love. Love forgives. But love also does not enable. Love does not allow poor behavior to just continue and continue and continue. Uh, a friend of our family, I grew up with his sons, is uh, Judge Sid Fitzwater. He was appointed by Reagan as a district judge for North Texas. And Katie's uncle for years was the county judge uh, for Palo Pinto Can or Comanche County out in central Texas. And both of those guys, I always find it interesting when you get to sit down and talk with a judge. Both of them have told me the same thing. One a district judge, one a county judge. They've said that there were times they had to render really difficult decisions. They could tell people were kind of in the wrong time and the wrong place. And there were just things that had happened that had led them to that point that are regrettable. But they still did what they did. They were still in the place they were in. And they had to render judgment. And people went to jail. But repeatedly, both of these men, judges, have told me that over the years, they've been overwhelmed at how many people that after they got out of prison wrote them or contacted them in some manner later, thanking them for the sentence that they were given. I needed that. I needed a time out. I needed somebody to put me in the corner. I needed somebody to put me in a place where I had to stop the behavior that I was in. But you know what? Especially when it comes to family, man, isn't that tough water to navigate? I mean, when you have a family member that's not acting right, understanding what to do, that has got to be one of the hardest things in the world. One of my good friends that I grew up with, uh, Mike Taylor, he, after we graduated high school, his dad was the band director at our high school. His older sister, and I went to Bible college together, knew this family, loved this family. Mike got married through a series of events. And this is going to sound like a large leap to you, and it was. It was shocking. He and his wife ended up becoming addicted um, to drugs. And specifically in the late 90s and early 2000s, there was a type of heroin called Chiva that came in a pill form that you could crush up and snort. And they had gone to a party where somebody was doing that, and they had gotten addicted to heroin through that. That sounds a little extreme. It was. It's like, are you kidding me? They had stolen from their family. They had refused to change. They had gotten into their addiction and stayed in their addiction. And their family had to hold the line with them. And it was heartbreaking. It was terrible. I remember Mike got to a point where he got scared. And he didn't like the consequences of his actions. And he called me and he talked to me. And the sad thing was, I could tell by talking to Mike that he was not ready to change. He just didn't like the consequences he was suffering in the moment. And I remember thinking, he's going to be back out there. As soon as the pressure's off him, he's going to be back out there. And sure enough, it wasn't even a month. He and his wife, they had sold their wedding ring. They had stolen TVs, whatever they could from their family. They were back out there. And in God's grace, God spared their lives and brought them both to a point where they went to a treatment facility. One, Mike, to, for men and his wife for women, where they stayed there for almost a full year. And they went through this treatment facility, and they got clean. And they learned the skills that they needed to deal with the things of life that they had not dealt with, and then move forward. And I got to go and speak at that rehab facility in Kaufman, Texas, and see my friend Mike being transformed. 
But you know what? A line had to be held. The addiction could not be supported. It could not be continued. But how do we navigate that waters with family? How do we navigate that with people that we love, that we care about? Well, that's the key. I just said it. Love. It doesn't make it easy. But if we're walking in love, which sometimes is wrapping your arms around somebody and saying, it's going to be okay. I've got you. And other times it's saying you can't come home when you're like that. But if you're in love, you can have confidence that God is with you and leading you and guiding you in that moment, even when it's hard. Do you see the importance that there is in love? L love is never irrelevant. Love is always relevant to the things of our lives, to the decisions we make when we come back to how does love apply to this, then we have just made the most relevant choice we can in that decision-making process. Amen? Let's continue on. We just have a little bit more to go today. Verse 8, love never fails. That really is more connected to the end of verse 7, but, but, but I wanted to separate it for just a moment here because he contrasts it with things that fade away. Love never fails. That's a grand statement, isn't it? I mean, don't you want to guarantee that something will never fail you? Don't we, don't we, when we go buy something at Best Buy, end up spending hundreds of dollars on warranties, right? Because we want to make sure if this breaks, it gets replaced. Love never fails. You don't even have to have a warranty on it. You have God's word on it. That's your warranty. God has spoken in his word that love will never fail. Wow, what a great promise that I have. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will fail. That word that we translate as they will fail, it is in the future indicative. It's passive. It means they're going to cause to come to an end. Be caused to come to an end. Where there are tongues, they will cease. It's a different verb. It is in the future. It's middle indicative, which means it will cease and come to an end without an outside force being acted upon it. And then he goes here, and I'm making a point here for just a moment. I'm not just nerding out in the Greek. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. That's the same verb that he uses for at the beginning of verse 8 for prophecy. So prophecies and knowledge will fade away. Uh, passive sense, tongues will fade away, middle sense. Now, I want to be careful and say something here. That's all that we know. All that we know is that they will fade away. It does not tell us when. It does not tell us how. And what I have a problem with is at times when people take their preconceived ideas and read it into this verse. We'll get into that more in chapter 14. But what we know, what is contrasted to these things that fade away is love that never so the point of the passage is not to teach on when tongues fade away, when prophecy fails away, or when knowledge fades away. That's not the point of the passage. The point of the passage is that the very things the Corinthians were taking pride in would fade away, but it's love that would last forever. That's the point. Now verse 9, for now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when that which is perfect has come, that which is in part will be done away with. And, and people deliberate on what this, what is perfect has come means. I believe it refers to the return of Christ. 
I could be wrong on that. I read one commentator that had seven different possibilities of what that means. But I think what it's saying is when the consummation of all that we've been waiting for, which is Jesus and his return, when that comes, we're not going to worry about these other things. They're going to be done away with. Some of them, they're not going to even be needed anymore. And then he says in verse 11, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He's confronting them. Guys, quit being so childish in your squabbles over your spiritual gifts they were given to you to lift up Christ to serve one another to walk in love for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face again that's why I think he's talking about the perfect is the return of Christ Uh, the city of Corinth made mirrors that were this polished metal but man the mirrors in those days are not great I mean you're you're looking real close going I think I can see my nose pretty good that kind of thing It wasn't real clear. And so what he's saying is we see this mirror dimly. So they understood. But he's saying there's coming a day, and it won't be dim. It will be perfect, and and all that's hidden will be revealed, and we'll see him as he is, and we'll be known as we are. Now, I know in part, verse 12, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Greatest is love. Brings us to our last point today is this. It's that love lasts forever. Love lasts forever. And again, there is a great gap between what we know and what we do. And if we believe that love is what makes that jump from time to eternity, if we believe that love is the essential ingredient, if we believe that what we do in love is what lasts, if we have really allowed that to be settled in our heart and to affect our thinking and the way that we live, whoo, what a difference that would make. Amen? What is it, 18 inches from your head to your heart? But man, that's a long distance at times, isn't it? It's not just what I say that I know or that I think that I know, but it's what my actions show that I know. And if we can really allow that love that truth about love, that conviction about the importance of love to be settled in our hearts. Man, it'll set the world on fire. Jesus said in John 13, by this all men will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. Jesus actually gave the world the right to judge us if we're his disciples or not. He said if you show love for one another, the world will know you're my disciples. If you're not showing love for one another, the world can look at you and say, that's not a disciple. That's what was happening in Corinth. They were allowing their self-centeredness to divide them. And they weren't letting all that they do be done in love. So let's close with 1 Corinthians chapter 16. This is the last verse. This is as Paul's bringing the epistle to a close. So this is kind of a spoiler alert. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 14. This is one of those verses that you read and you go how in the world can I ever do this first Corinthians 16 verse 14 let all that you do be done with love now go out there and obey that perfectly everybody exactly exactly how in the world do I do that how do I do that how in the world can I walk in obedience to that let all that you do Be done with love. Here's how. By acknowledging my great need for my Savior. 
that I have no hope of doing that, but that the God who loved me desires to live that life through me, and as I submit to his lordship in my life, that verse can actually be true of me. That's my hope. My hope is Jesus. When I just look at that verse in my own strength, in my own flesh, knowing how I have failed this week, I laugh at that verse and go, there's no way, there's no hope. But when I look to my Savior who has loved me, who has died for me, has filled me with His Spirit, who has a purpose and a plan for me, who has given me His Word, who says, now go do this, know my love and show my love, then I can look at that verse and go, Lord Jesus, I can't wait to see how you're going to empower me to walk in obedience to that this week. Woo! Can we do that? I'm going to get fired up even if you don't. God loves me. So the Spirit of Christ in me can help me to do that. That's amazing. Would you please stand with me? If you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to be forgiven of your sins, to know the love of God, to be filled with His Spirit, to know the gifting of His Spirit and the fruit of His Spirit in your life, man, today is your day. There is a loving God who says, come to me. His promise is, I will not turn you away. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. God in his love has sent his son to die for us, to rise for us, to ascend to the right hand of the Father. That whoever believes in him will be saved. And apart from Jesus, we are hopeless to walk in the love that God calls us to walk in. But in Jesus, man, we have a lot to look forward to. So if you've never put your faith in Christ, I invite you, first of all, to start there. To say, Lord Jesus, I believe in you today. You changed me. You helped me to do the impossible. To love like you loved. But maybe for the rest of us, we have, as I was going through that list, we were kind of taking notes. Yeah, I need to work on that. 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 Let me close with this. It is not about how much harder you try this week. You get busy worshiping Jesus and loving Jesus and surrendering your will to Jesus and Jesus will bear that fruit in your life. You focus on him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this week. We thank you for this word that you've given us. 1 Corinthians 13, this challenge to love like you love us. Lord, this is a high standard. It is a it's above our pay grade. We can't do it. But it's not above you. And so we look to you and entrust you to help us, empower us to live through us the life that we could never live on our own. And we're going to give you the praise and the glory for it because you're good. And that's what you do. And you make your light known in these weak earthen vessels that we are. So we give you praise this morning for the hope that we have in you. If there's anybody here that doesn't know you, Lord, may they not wait, but may they come now and say, I, I need to believe this, Jesus. I need to be saved. Lord, bless this time of response. We give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.